2: Welcome to Strange Familiars. How are you doing tonight, Alice? I'm fine. Well, as promised, we have guest hosts tonight. John and Sam from Riverbend Comics have done us a good favor and stepped in. They're going to take the reins of Strange Familiars for us tonight. They're going to talk about some comics with paranormal themes. I think we're going to do this again with them at some point because there's some comics that I wanted to talk about with mm-hmm. them, but I'm glad to have them kind of take this episode and take the theme. We'll have a link in the show notes that'll take you to a special section on riverbendcomics.com. They kind of have a high strangeness section. It'll have all the titles they talk about on the show. And then uh, I think they have my books in there as well. So you can pick up stuff from Riverbend Comics. And I'm happy if you get my books from them or from us or wherever you get them, I'm happy. Before we turn the show over to John and Sam, though, I want to take a moment and mention our wonderful sponsors, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. If you have a puppy and you need help with your puppy, if it's mouthing and biting, or if you're having trouble potty training, leash training, crate training, if your puppy's barking too much or has hyperactivity issues, whatever problems you have, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can help you. They have a relationship-based approach to training. They help you and your puppy become perfect for each other. You can find them at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. Check them out. They have online sources, video lessons. They have a secret Facebook group where you can interact with other puppy owners who might be having the same issues you are and might be able to offer some (laughs) some creative help for your puppy problems. And, of course, one-on-one options are available as well. Again, you can find them at SidHappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. So now, let's turn the show over to John and Sam for some paranormal comic talk.
3: Hello, everyone. Is that too loud? It was pretty loud. All right, sorry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Strange Familiars, and this is an episode that may seem a little less strange and also less familiar, Uh, but we're filling in here today for Tim, and uh, happy to be here. My name is John.
4: And I'm Sam, and it's actually strange and familiar because we're strange hosts, but you're familiar because you've been on the podcast before as a contributor.
3: Yeah, I, you know, some of you guys may remember me, Um, but uh, Tim and I go way back, and so I do kind of pop in now and then, and I do have some ties to the supernatural, as well as uh, the business that we run um, called Riverbend Comics. And uh, we were really excited to be on one of the recent episodes talking about The Shadow. And we're back today. And our goal today is really to kind of run through and talk about some books that we've got in our collection here that we think might be interesting to the listeners of Transfamiliar's. Familiars. A lot of you folks might be uh, familiar with a series that in both comics and television called The Walking Dead. And we're not going to talk about that today, but there's a little known graphic novel called Curse of the Wendigo that was illustrated by Charlie Adlard, who is um, responsible for the bulk of the artwork in the Walking Dead series. He popped on in number seven and did the entire series up through uh, the final issue of Walking Dead, 193. And uh, this is a book that came out in 2011. So he was in the middle of his Walking Dead run when this came out and... Um, I wasn't actually familiar with this until a couple years ago when it popped up. It's published by Dynamite Entertainment, came out in 2011, and uh, is a you know pretty small graphic novel that you can read in one sitting.
4: I liked it. Uh, I like the art because I know <clears throat> Charlie Adler's art, so it's familiar to me, and I like it. Um, I thought that the story the story had me from the beginning because it's uh, set during World War One, and as somebody who's interested in history, I'm automatically... Uh, connected to that sort of thing. I'm automatically intrigued. Uh, I also was interested in the fact that it was from the French perspective. Um, normally, when you get these things, they, they they sort of automatically go to the American perspective. But um, this is trench warfare in the 19-teens, um, and it's uh, I don't, somewhere in, you know, either France or somewhere along the, the, the you know, the demar- line of demarcation between the German lines and the French lines. I think it's three years into the war when it takes place. And so, right away, the sense I get, especially with Adler's art, is that this is a grueling, horrendous, misery filled, one step away from death existence. There's a fine line of demarcation between the fear of receiving the bullet and the relief of receiving the bullet that ends your life. And kind of to step back a little bit
3: and give you the sort of the gist of what's going on in this book, there is a uh, native soldier named Wahati of of the Cree, and he has found himself overseas uh, with the French military. And we find out that he has found his way there because he has been tracking and searching after uh, this Wendigo spirit. And um, it seems to be uh, running ragged through both sides of the skirmish. The French and the Germans are experiencing the results of this and this as a result, they sort of draw a temporary truce and decide to send several soldiers from each side with Wohati to find out what has been killing their soldiers uh, in such a gruesome way and resolve that issue. So, um, Sam, I'd like to know from you, how historically accurate is this? Did Are there historical examples of um, raging cannibalistic Wendigos? plaguing the, the soldiers in World War One.
4: So, you, you, you're, you're joking, maybe, but <clears throat> this is what I found compelling about the story, is that what's so different about a raging Wendigo and the reality of trench warfare? The way that it uh, wreaks havoc upon the human body, people's minds, Um, The idea of the metaphor of a wendigo sort of standing in for war works for me, especially when you have something as bloody and gruesome what at the time was the most destructive event in human history. And so that's kind of how it fits. It fits the metaphor and the feel and the atmosphere of a world war, where it's just this is all about the destruction of the human body, and what major warfare and weaponry and artillery and a mustard gas is built to do is destroy the human body in ways that human beings had never ever seen before. So um, no, there's no sort of historical evidence of a Wendigo, and yet the The reality of the destruction that it causes is on par with the destruction to to the human body of of, of what war does. And in fact, it, there is sort of a little joke in here um, along the way because there's three French soldiers and I think three German soldiers yeah. who set out together and they're like initially kind of really skeptical, as you might imagine. Like, and there's a couple jokes like, "Are we?" Do we just stop shooting each other now and then after we do this do we go back to shooting each other you know we should do this over christmas and the, and the joke there is actually they did uh one christmas i think it was 1915 they actually stopped the war and everybody celebrated and did their christmas things and then as soon as christmas was over they went back to shooting each other
3: didn't they actually come together and have christmas together at the same tables in
4: yeah in the in the war zone that's unbelievable so that there's a reference to that here um Towards the back of the book, there's, this, there's a, a story about a character, Chirot, one of the French soldiers, who was court-martialed and, and ultimately executed because of this crazy story that he told, which seems to be the story of Tracking the Wendigo. Um, and that's in the historical record, this back bit here. I don't know if that yeah. comes from the historical record or what. It wouldn't surprise me to learn that there are stories told by soldiers during the war who saw things and experienced things that would be within the realm of the supernatural, um, largely because of the experience, of the, the you know the psycho trauma of being in a war, but also because maybe you know a situation like that actually calls for you know a transition into it into a paranormal um, you know supernatural experience. Well,
3: the other thing too is really neat hearing you say that. This is what that made me think of is that a lot of times supernatural experiences happen to folks when they're in the midst of liminal spaces or they're in the midst of um, like construction of houses where they're kind of going from one phase to another. And there's pretty much nothing more liminal than like the destruction of a war because you're never the same before and after, whether on an individual level or a cultural level.
4: And the, the concept of liminality, like you're literally on a line. Yeah. Like you're on a line of demarcation. Like it's, it, you cross that line. It's, it means certain death. So you're living on the line between life and death every minute of the day.
3: Uh, and I should mention, too, the, the writer himself is named Matthew Missoff. And I may have mispronounced his last name, but I didn't want to not mention the writer. Um, but, yeah, that last bit in here is certainly written as if it is a historical record and seems mm. seems like it's it actually happened.
4: So, well, I would like to talk a little bit about the Wendigo as a uh, a thing. Yeah. So... What do you know about the Wendigo? Uh, I know uh, very little. I remember reading a little bit about a Wendigo, which shows up in an X-Men book.
3: Yeah, uh, and it's funny i I think I read I think I read this and realized that I don't know enough about the folklore as much about the folklore of the Wendigo as I thought. I had always pictured the Wendigo as almost like a Bigfoot-like creature. Um. And almost as like a synonym for Bigfoot, sort of like Yeti and Sasquatch. But I'm realizing that it's much more of the spirit realm and we could, you know, now they say that. I mean, Bigfoot itself may be of the spirit realm, so who knows. But, uh, yeah, I grew up reading about the Wendigo from Marvel Comics. And um, so even thinking about the Wendigo, that's the image that I get. The, the Wendigo was actually a man who has gone through a ritual to, yeah. to become, in a sense, immortal as long as he began and continued to feed upon human flesh. Mm-hmm. So, and that's that's interesting. I, I makes me want to kind of read up on the Wendigo a little more and see what other legends uh, uh, tell about the origin of the Wendigo and what the Wendigo is.
4: So I think that the flesh-eating concept here is something to dwell on for a moment um, in that that's automatically seen as like an evil thing Sort of a like a, a a taboo thing, and so the Wendigo character. Now I don't I can't speak for the legend itself and its origins, and with within the tradition that it comes from, but there is a kind of analog to the Wendigo in lots of different cultures, and that there's a, a creature out there who's like made of evil, uh, and the idea is that like this creature does things that are inexorably bad, and a lot of these traditions have a kind of character like that within their. You know, within their lore, as a means of kind of like, I guess, you know, keeping your tribe or your community or your your people kind of like aware of the fact that there are lines you can cross into the evil realm, um, which which are are you know, forbidden, and like you, you can get there, you don't want to, and it's still to keep people sort of keep it, keep them in line.
3: So, what are what are some examples of those other traditions that you're referring to?
4: There are lots of these. Um, I would say like lots. Of, I'm thinking of like the X Files sort of, and like how they how the X Files kind of like um, traveled this territory where they talked about different cultures and and how these things would come to life. And I'm thinking of like the chupacabra, for example, which are like things that it's the are, goat sucker. Yeah, things that come from lore, which when manifest, um, you know, would be seen as X File type paranormal air you know, uh, in paranormal territory, but are actually born of deep seated tradition going back, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of
3: years. So in the podcast realm here, we call those cryptids.
4: I learned a new word cryptids. So those cryptids are, are, are universal, I imagine. Um, and there are, there, you know, the, the ones that are, um, I would be familiar with were ones that come from like, um, you know, Abrahamic religion, um, where you get like concepts of, Uh, the kinds of, the, the areas that you're not supposed to delve into, like black magic is, you know, like I'm thinking specifically of, of contacting, um, people from the other realm of like, uh, you know, witchcraft, which in the book of Samuel, for, for example, the, the King Saul is, is, is kind of, he's compelled to go to a witch, basically like a seer, um, or a uh, um, a, a, a medium to kind of like to see the future, which you're not supposed to do. That scene is like really bad.
5: Hmm.
4: Uh, And so like crossing over into the other realm of the dead is seen as a place that you should sort of stay away from. Uh, And so like he's cursed and he's ultimately killed for this transgression. And there's, you know, a lot of different like characters that show up throughout the Hebrew Bible who kind of like traverse that territory between life and death. You don't really learn about it in Sunday school. Sure. Because, you know, it's too much fun. I didn't learn much in Sunday school. No, I imagine not. <laughs> this native uh, uh, Cree guy finds his way across the Atlantic Ocean in the early 20th century to fight with the French, alongside the French in the, in the First World War. Which is like, that's weird.
3: Well, I don't know. I. I had assumed that he came along with the American soldiers, and there's actually a little footnote down here that says, an estimate of more than 12,000 American Indians fought in the trenches during the First World War. At that time, the United States had not yet granted them citizenship. So here they are um, being enlisted or drafted probably more like um, to fight in this war that that wasn't their war, and they weren't even being considered as people at that point.
4: So there's no draft in the, during the first world war right that comes later okay so it was they were definitely listing and you know there can be any number of reasons as to why but yeah clearly like and he he mentions the character mentions that you know he's uh fighting for a country that doesn't even recognize his existence yeah um and there's there are it's not overtly political in that the story is all about like the struggle of the natives and how you know Ultimately, Europeans and you know the the white man destroyed their way of life. That really isn't central to this story, but if you know it, you know, and if you're you're aware of it, then like his presence here is sort of, I guess, it, it speaks for a, it, it speaks for sort of a larger cause.
3: Yeah, it's an it's an important backdrop, and for him, this character, you know, being there as part of the war was really a means to an end for him. It, that was his. I read it as if that was his ticket across the ocean to. Captured this this being he was
4: tracking and seeking. So I mean, do we? I don't know how much of this we give away, but like no spoilers. No spoilers. Okay, well. good. <laughs> well, okay. <'cause>, okay. <laughs> yeah, let's buy not, the book and find out.
3: <laughs> yeah, it ties it ties up pretty nice, and there's some neat twists at the end, and uh, which we're not going to give away. Curse of the Wendigo I enjoyed it. I, I recommend it. It was a good read. What, what about you, Sam?
4: I I, I I did too. I actually wasn't expecting much. And um, and it, it delivered in a way that was uh, um, satisfying. I
3: I mean I picked it up originally because of Charlie Adler yes. his his artwork as a, as a Walking Dead fan. It's hard to look at his illustrations and not think Walking Dead it's or have very that same feel. And it's interesting because I I don't know if it was his first comic, but where I first saw his artwork was in the '90s. He illustrated a whole bunch of the uh, X Files comics, so his kind of. Um, wheelhouse is definitely in the horror supernatural kind of realm of comics.
4: Yeah, a lot of these, um, if you're familiar with the Walking Dead comics, a lot of these characters that we're looking at that are French and German soldiers kind of like are reminiscent of, like their faces are reminiscent of some of the people that we've come to know in The Walking Dead universe. Yeah. Like that looks like Eugene.
3: I kind of feel like Wahadi should have enlisted Negan to help him fight the Wendigo.
4: Well, you know, I don't know. Can you, can you beat a Wendigo with a barbed wire covered baseball bat?
3: I think you can beat anything with a barbed wire covered baseball bat. Already then. It's worth a try.
4: It's settled.
3: Okay. We'll leave it at that. Okay. All right. So the next the next thing on our reading pile here is a book called The Department of Truth, which is a pretty recent publication by Image Comics. And uh, it's been coming out uh, serialized in single issues. And I think it's around number seven or eight right now. And this is a collection of the first five issues in a book called Department of Truth, The End of the World. And this is written by... Um, Kind of one of the... How do you pronounce it? Tinian? 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 I would J- say Tinian. James but Tinian. He's tiny. Uh, James Tinian fourth is the writer, and he has been sort of blown up in the comics world. He's been writing Batman. He's yeah. been writing a comic book called Something is Killing the Children. Um, and uh, the art duties on this issue are by a guy named Martin Simmons, which um, for me was a bit of an acquired taste. He has... Absolutely seems to have gone to the school of Bill Sinkovich and has a lot of sort of the 90s Bill Sinkovich feel to him.
4: Yeah, that that, um, now that I'm looking at it and you mentioned that, um, that actually reminds me of that uh, copy of The Shadow that we were looking at the Sinkovich copy of the Shadow. Yeah,
3: totally. This the page I'm looking at right now, which um, obviously the podcast listeners can't see, but he's got this penchant for um, checkers. So the the tablecloth in a diner scene is all checkered checkerboard but it's very uneven checkers and the wall behind them is the same and that's a such a sinkovich thing
4: it's very flat there's not a lot of like there's you know it's not it, it doesn't work sort of with with a depth per, with depth or, or 3d things you know, it's very yeah. flat and like the edges of things are are kind of like not very well defined which um actually works for me for this particular comic and we'll get into why um you didn't you okay so let's be honest at at first blush you're like i don't like this art Uh, i don't and i'm one of the rare like comic
3: fans who for me bill sinkovich has always been hot or cold uh i'm not i like him in small doses and so for for to see entire books by him is a little much for me and i feel the same way with this guy um i've now read this book a couple times and it's starting to grow in me and it sort of does follow the feel of the narrative
4: All right. So before we get into like how the art kind of fits the narrative, talk through what the premise is. So
3: it's funny because we just talked about the X-Files earlier. And so the premise of this book is very much like X-Files, where instead of investigating supernatural phenomena or monsters and things like that, like Scully and Mulder did, this is a uh, government department that is built around investigating conspiracy theories. And so it's super timely. And uh, there's some uh, really cool twists in here which we won't give away.
4: Yeah, but what's paranormal about it?
3: Well, it's interesting. So this this brings up um, so so this this settles around a character named Cole who is an FBI agent who gets uh, who his job is investigating conspiracy theories on the internet. So he spends way more time behind a desk than in the field. Uh, He's considered an FBI teacher for his part-time job and teaches other agents. But he gets enlisted by this group mainly because he uh, is looking into the conspiracy theories and spends time at a convention built around the Flat Earth Society. And to his surprise... Which I'm a part of,
4: by the way. Oh, you I? are? Yeah. I believe that. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, there's tons of evidence out there. There's that. I mean, look at the floor. It's yeah, flat. It's totally flat. Like, am I, like, rolling off the end of the... No, I'm not. And there was that guy who got in a rocket recently, or I, a balloon or something. And... I
3: occasionally roll off the...
4: Well, that's because... You're an inveterate alcoholic.
3: Yeah, there's that.
4: (laughs) So, yeah, so he ends up
3: going to the end of the earth. And so this is wrapped around this idea of something called tulpas, which I'm pretty sure we've mentioned on the podcast before, which um, sort of translates to thought form and this idea that thought can manifest into reality if it's strong enough. And so this is looking at tulpas on almost a cultural level. And so this department is trying to stop things like a conspiracy theory like the Flat Earth Society taking hold, and enough people believing it that it actually becomes reality, and all time is retrofitted to that reality of the Earth being flat. And so it's, um, and that's only in the first issue, uh, and kind of expands from there.
4: So let's just investigate that for a second, because uh, I, I, there's, you know, it. Number one, it's interesting, and number two, it, this is sort of core, I think, to the concept of, of maybe strange familiars in general, right? Like, there are a lot of things that, that Tim investigates that are these stories that are, have become really, really popular, and I think one of the things that this comic book is trying to do is say, like, it's. I mean, it's asking that sort of perennial question, like, what's true? Uh... And, um, is, is something true because people believe it or, or is there something beyond that? Like there's just like simple scientific fact and you can choose not to believe it, but you'd be wrong. And so like the whole, we joked about the flat earth thing earlier, but like, you know, the earth is round the end. Uh, but, <laughs> but if indeed this based on this type of theory, if enough people sort of put like invest belief and, and effort and research into the idea that something could be another way, does that begin to kind of butt up against or approach a certain kind of truth in and of itself?
3: Well, it is really neat. And I've never seen sort of this concept to put on like a cultural level like this and something like the flat earth. But I think even on the individual level, like thought is super powerful. Oftentimes, even with like natural remedies and things, because I, I delve in that a lot, your belief in whether something will work has a huge impact on whether it does or not. And intention is really important. And, what does that mean when you expand that out infin- infinitely
4: you, i once had a like an ingrown nail on my finger it actually has a m- happened a bunch of times and you created you concocted some wizardly poultice it looked like <laughs> mud um i don't i know that there was like garlic in it and and honey and 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 a bunch of other stuff you you should you should list all the things because it's a wonderful list of things
3: was well, proprietary? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, for the listeners at home, like I'm also a farmer and a forager, and I um, work a lot with herbalism and wa- and wild medicine and things like that. So you're a wizard. Well, I wouldn't go that far. Um, but wizards my
4: are they? They don't wear hats. I forget. Is it wizards with a hat? I think the sorcerers are just wizards without hats. Yeah, I hope. Yeah,
3: hopefully, some of you will get that reference. <laughs> um, but yeah, there is uh, a huge component to all types of medicine and how you're feeling about it and whether. You believe it will work. I mean, there's there are things like placebo effects which um, are used in tests, but placebos, if they work, they work. And um, there's a long history of herbal medicine um, being very, very effective. And whether you are open to that type of uh, remedy is going to impact how well they work.
4: So when you you what so when you put this concoction onto my finger, um, I it swelled up to like. It was like twice the size of what it normally. Yeah, is. It looked, like looked fantastic. It was like green. It was bad, and you know I don't know if you want to talk about what the ingredients were. Um, there were like pretty stand it wasn't anything fancy, as I recall.
3: No, I use you know honey, uh, which is an amazing antibacter- antibacterial, antibacterial, um, antifungal uh, charcoal, which is really good at drawing out um, plantain, not the banana type, but the uh, the herb that grows wild, plantago, and Humphrey. Comfrey, which is a really strong healing herb and that that may have been it. It may have been one or two other things. A lot of times it's really just about what's um what's in season or growing and that I can use fresh or if I have dried supplies. But but it's effective. They work.
4: Yeah, so you, you put this thing on my finger and you're like, All right, look, like the only thing you need to do here is just like as I put this on, say to yourself, you know, this will work. And so you wrapped it in tape and you're like, it should feel hot. And so I, I don't know. Did I choose to allow myself to believe that it felt hot or did it feel hot? It doesn't matter is the point. Right. Uh, and within 24 hours, my finger was all better.
3: Yeah. And, re- and realistically speaking, those are all effective herbs. So it would have likely have worked completely fine without your even knowing what it was or what it was for. But intention is a powerful thing. You know, was that in, in itself a type of thought form? I don't think so. Um, do you think that you can bring things to being by, by thinking it? Uh, physical things?
4: So, put that way, no. But I do believe, based on sort of some, you know, personal reflection, investigation, therapy, and meditation that I've done over the last, like, 12, 15 years of my life, that there are things that you can do um, mentally, emotionally, to heal your body physically. Like, um, for example, I have major... You know, major anxiety and, 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 and I've suffered from depression and stuff like that. And I've over time, what I've discovered is that, um, you know, I can't like think my way out of those things, but the certain physical manifestations of that, that I generally throughout my life just like took as normal, like my stomach would be out of control full of like all kinds of pain and gas and, and uncomfortable feelings and what it was was me kind of like sublimating my stress and saying I don't feel this I shouldn't feel this I don't feel this but my body was like yes you do and so it would therefore like manifest it in its own way and then like until I began to open my mind up to the idea that that could actually be a thing um, it, it, like nothing changed and so but there came a point where now I haven't fixed it but there's come a point where it's like when I admit I'm in pain right now, or I'm I'm feel discomfort right now, and it may be my stomach or another part of my body. There is something that happens where like the the sort of death grip, the vice grip that the pain has on me begins to release a little bit. And I think that comes from intentionality. I think that comes from practice. It comes from like wearing new wearing new um, neuropathological grooves in your brain sure. to kind of like change the way you do things and and change unhealthy habits into more healthy ones. Anyway, how does this relate to the Department of Truth? So the way it relates to (laughs) the way it relates to Department of Truth in my mind is um, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean when Cole reaches the end of the world? He literally gets on
3: an airplane with members of this group from the Flat Earth Society who say we need to show you something. And he flies Literally, to the end of the earth. Um, thereby conf- and there it is. Thereby confirming is a wonderful two-page spread, which is done in a crazy Martin Simmons-esque painterly style. Um, you're a big
4: fan of two-page spreads.
3: Oh, I love a two-page spread. What do you Especially,
2: like about a two-page spread?
3: Man, you're reading and you're, you're down here in the details, and you're going panel by panel, and then, then you turn the page and it just blows up into this massive um, display.
4: So describe what you're seeing.
3: So what I see now is... is White Arctic mess and what appears to be other planets in the distance um, although this is like a map of the of the world on a, on, a, on a round circle as opposed to a sphere and the plane is flying into this uh, abyss and so we're led to believe that what he is seeing here is the literal end of the world as if the world was actually flat and he's seeing physical visual confirmation of it right now and uh, the next words out of his mouth are oh Jesus. So he's kind of blown away by that.
4: Is he at the end of like what's the conceit here? Is he at the end of the world, or what's happening? What's your theory?
3: Well, I so he's on this plane and he sleeps for a little bit, and when he comes to, he's a little stumbly. Uh, he feels sick. He pukes, and then he's seeing this stuff. I actually think he's been drugged and he's hallucinating. That's okay. he's acting like someone who's been drugged. But at the end of this scene, he gets um, without going into too much detail, he gets absconded away from this group into the grips of the government agency that we come to learn is the Department of Truth. And we learn why he was chosen and uh, why he is the perfect uh, individual. He's sort of becoming our um, Agent Mulder of the series. He's an interesting guy.
4: Is he as attractive as, as, as as Fox Mulder is? David Duchovny? Hell no. Nobody is. No, you can't touch that. All right. So, um so here's here's what I like about the book and we're going to sort of inch up against a spoiler which we will not divulge. One of the things that is frames the book uh, in a way is the assassination of John F. Kennedy.
3: Yep. That's our that's our fir- that's our page 1 intro to what's happening
4: here. Which for many people, myself included, remains one of those things where it's like there is Undeniably, a government conspiracy surrounding this event. We will, ne- there's this, we will never know the truth about it. And there's that sort of like nagging mystery. And I mean, people for decades have attempted to like draw out the, the, you know, definite and incontrovertible truth about the JFK assassination. And obviously, like, there are different sides of the coin and people have gone off the deep end on this and people have written books and Oliver Stone has made movies, which is a great movie, by the way, just in none of itself. It's just a, a wonderful film to watch, even if it may be all garbage. Uh, and, you know, and people have, like, gone to, gone to sort of war, battle of words over this, and maybe even fists, I don't know, about what actually happened. Whether the government... Narrative about a one gunman shooting of President Kennedy in Dallas in November 1963 is actually a viable truth or not. And, and people have twisted themselves into knots trying to determine what actually happened there. Uh, and that in and of itself becomes, like, its own sort of supernatural kind of investigation, something that, of course, many of us have become obsessed with, myself included. And so when it starts there, I'm automatically pulled in because I'm like, this is something that... No matter what, you 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 parachute me in. You say JFK assassination, I'm there. Um, now I've I've changed my views <laughs> on like what I th- what I think of John F Kennedy as a president, and you know why he would have been assassinated. And and you know we, we, again, this is not a this is not a JFK assassination podcast. It remains one of those major historical mysteries that com- really compel people. So I'm pulled in right 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 away. And like when it comes to like picking sides and flatter societies, there are certainly groups of people who believe that there is a major or was a major conspiracy at play here, like indeed in the actual event and then covering up the event. So it begins with one of the biggest and most and thorniest American political mysteries. Can enough people, if enough people like, and this is kind of at the conceit of the book, if enough people believe a certain thing is true, about the assassination, does that then become the accepted reality of what happened?
3: And that certainly seems to be what they're fighting against in this
5: yeah. in and this series. Yes.
3: What is the relationship between uh, the belief of the masses and reality? And if that is happening, where is the need for intervention for the government in this case to step in and try to change it?
4: Yeah. And what is the government's... Um, what what is the motivation of the government? Yeah, what is their agenda? What's like, their agenda, right? Because, like, when you think about JFK and you think about it from, like, a, um, a truly deeply, like, deep state kind of conspiracy perspective, you're like, well, the government is always out to get us, the masses, right? They're always out to, like, pull over our eyes and, and pull off assassinations and do things that are good for them and, and like, the, um, you know, the power elite and the cabal, whatever. If the government isn't completely an agent of evil... What then is their agenda in all of this and what are they set what are they there to do? And I think that the first five issues of this book actually make a good case for what exactly the government is doing in these situations, what they're and what they're trying to maintain, and what kind of balance they're trying to maintain. And there's 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 like, you know, merit to that. Like I think that there's like that's first of all an interesting storyline. And secondly, like gives you a different perspective on the whole concept of government conspiracy to begin with. Like what's their agenda? Like what are they trying to, to do for the world as a whole? I think that this actually bears multiple readings. So I, I've
3: read this a couple times now and I've gotten a little bit more out of it each time and it's a lot to think about. And I'm really fascinated to see where this is going.
4: Yeah. It's gotten pretty crazy in, uh, issue six and seven we kind of depart from where the first five issues went. And, uh, issue seven was actually my favorite one of all.
3: Yeah. We're definitely worth checking out. So we, you know, we're definitely, um, trying to keep these in stock and, uh, supporting and promoting this series it's, it's excellent
4: is there sort of like
3: a tv show or something
4: in the offing here
3: oh yeah there's been rumors of um that it's been optioned to become a show or a movie i'm not sure what the current state of that is but
0: what's the easiest choice you can make window instead of middle seat picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket outsourcing business tasks you hate what about selling with shopify <laughs>
4: so by way of transition I have a question for you yes when I say the name Alan Moore what comes to mind
3: wow well it's funny I'm also among the maybe not minority with Alan Moore of comics fans who for me Alan Moore is also kind of hit and miss Um, obviously Watchmen is the first thing that comes to mind which is a masterpiece one of my favorite uh, pieces of comics work ever Um, he's a grumpy old man and uh, reading reading interviews with him is kind of fascinating but um yeah, Watchmen and his Swamp Thing run, for me, uh, are the epitome of his work. So fantastic. And um,
4: What do you like about him and those works specifically?
3: Well, for me, like as a kid growing up, my introduction to Swamp Thing was some of the early issues and then also uh, the really bad yet really wonderful movie that came out, um, <laughs> I guess, early 80s. Uh, worst special effects ever. It was <laughs> worth watching if you haven't seen it. Um, And the thing I loved about Watchmen was it's so dense and there's so much in there and it it really is one of the best graphic novels ever written, Um, which makes it odd that uh, From Hell, which is what we're going to be talking about next, his big, massive tome, um, it's like 572 pages. Um, I've actually tried to read it a couple times and I have yet to get through
4: it. How is it hitting the table?
3: It's big and heavy. And, and actually, the, the new hardcover edition, which we have right here, which we were reading, um, is beautiful. I love the – it's such a beautiful copy. Mm. Um, Agreed. You got through the whole thing and loved it. Yep. And I want to hear about that. I I haven't given up on it yet, but I need to sit down and, like, take it in little chunks and really kind of digest each issue, I think.
4: Speaking of little chunks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's about a serial killer who takes parts off of people, sometimes big chunks, sometimes big chunks. And you're mostly likely familiar with a serial killer um, known in kind of the, you know, the world of historical lore as Jack the Ripper. That's the general premise, uh, although it's about much more than that.
3: Well, and the title from hell apparently comes from um, a letter that is believed to be actually written by the real Jack the Ripper.
4: Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell, who is his partner on this one, did all the research that you need to do about Jack the Ripper. I don't know if you saw, but there's extensive footnotes at the end, pages and pages of footnotes at the end on each panel. And sort of the historical either accuracy or poetic license that they took, dramatic license that they took in changing things. In reference to several different books, some of which are a little bit more um, credible than others, that recall or try to piece together the story of who the Jack Jack the River was, because there's really no definitive story here. And this is actually from Hell, in and of itself, is a theory about who he was. I mean, there's approaches towards the truth, um, but but this and this is one of them that it delves deeply into historical record and you know personal interviews and police records in uh you know in a way that that reminds one of like you know um h- historical novels and that kind of thing, which I think is done extensively well it's it's done really really well and extensively
3: I'm pretty lukewarm when it comes to period pieces generally, and you know Victorian England i would say is not my wheelhouse of knowledge or general interest, so I had a little time to get I had a little hard time getting sucked into it
4: so it, that's interesting because i don't Consider Victorian England to be my wheelhouse either. Uh, It does tend to leave me a little bit cold, in general. It's got a stigma about it, Uh, and you know I much prefer like medieval history, ancient history. Like if you you set something in like Rome or like Greece or you know Bithynia, Pergamum or or Antioch. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like wow, I'm right there, you know. I like
3: I like frying things in Greece.
4: There you go. So I'm gonna let that one sit there. (laughs) <laughs> like a thing in your stomach, which is really greasy. just sits there. Yeah, yeah, yeah long term. Long... <laughs> so now, you've talked a little bit about Alan Moore, and you've talked a little bit about what you like about Alan Moore. This is just a random page. What do you see here? I see horse-drawn carriages. Uh-huh.
3: Well, I see Eddie Campbell doing his Eddie Campbell thing, and he's kind of moving you through the panels with his very um, scratchy kind of style.
4: So what what's amazing to me about this is that, first of all, when you say, like, scratchy, this is black and white. Yeah,
3: we got some black-and-white artwork. When I love black-and-white artwork, I don't have any issues with that.
4: Yeah, this is line art and scratchy and um, shadowy and silhouette-y. And um, some of it is impressionistic in that way. But then there are moments that are, like, really vivid and up in your face. Like the characters who are um, these scraggly, beaten-down, very often very poor street people... Um, this is a story largely about prostitutes and drunks in in England who are living like you know mouthful to mouthful they really their lives are really really deeply struck through with poverty and so like you see that in their faces you see like the 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 wrinkles and you see the the pain and you see the the wear and tear on the body and like Human intimacy where there's a lot of that here, and there's a picture right there of the human body in repose and it's like not sexy at all it's really yeah, he's definitely gritty. got grit
3: grittiness to the characters, which I think fits the story and the time and the
4: so the story is about ultimately about William Gull, who is um member of the upper class i mean it it's it's a bit convoluted, but he kind of gets as the history goes he kind of gets like um entwined in this attempt to, to, I guess, cover up a royal sex scandal. And um, he's kind of like contracted by ultimately the queen to make sure that these women who are going to speak out against uh, the prince, Prince Albert I think. There's a relationship and a, an a, offspring because of it and the idea is that these women are going to like finally speak out against him and say you know that you know that they're these um, trod upon forgotten members of society and they're, they're going to blackmail him so that they can like make themselves some money and get out of the trenches I guess William Gull is kind of contracted because he's a doctor and he works in the hospital where he takes care of mental patients and so he's sort of contracted to kind of like get rid of them but he doesn't get rid of them in any kind of like conventional way. He's so here, and here's where the sort of the paranormal comes in a bit. Like he's a mason, a Freemason. He takes this shit very, ser- very seriously. And there's like a whole otherworldly realm of gods and goddesses and all kinds of lore that 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 goes back many centuries that he is uh, steeped in, and it kind of like brings to the fore. As he ultimately like mutilates women, kills them and mutilates them, all these like offerings to these to these gods and these, these divine figures that he's supposedly trying to appease, uh, and it's this aspect of the story that that steps away from like the the everyday and and the way that that Alan Moore kind of addresses these things in the story is that there are moments of departure from the norm, departure from William Gull departs from his body, goes into different eras of time, different kind of um levels of consciousness, and, and there's like a whole sort of ethereal aspect to this, uh, which which I think like gives you a sense that this whole Jack the Ripper story has a lot more to do with like the ills of society and the tendency for people to kind of like cling to things that are like the windigo in a way that are like to explain evil, like mm-hmm. that, that that go beyond just like the the mundane everyday. Like here's an angry person who murdered someone. Like there has to be something else going on. There's got to be another kind of realm of evil that is controlling people's actions because normal people wouldn't behave this way.
3: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can see that in this and the whole idea of the. This being a cover up for an illeg- illegitimate baby is like a big conspiracy theory in itself, right? Like they don't know that that's actually true, right?
4: Uh, it right. So there, there, you know, there is a great deal of circumstantial evidence.
3: Yeah. Where Where else is this sort of? To, you talk to me a, bit, a little bit about the anachronisms that are popping up, like
4: oh yeah, there's so some
3: weird panels in here I've seen where we leave uh, Victorian England and all of a sudden there's a TV in the background. Right, so
4: there's this moment here. It's chapter uh, 7 on page 24. Pretty famous moment. Um, where William Gull is kind of skulking through these alleyways, but it's like this really downtrodden, poor slum area where he kind of finds his victims, and he's sort of skulking through the alleys, and he winds up in someone's window, and the and you first get the perspective of the person um, in the window with like a sagging light bulb from William Gull, William Gull's perspective, and then it and then it it switches, but in between it switching, you see that behind this person's head is it is a television. And um, actually Alan Moore explains to you what's on the TV and, and we can talk about that. But like it's clear that like by the wallpaper and the fact that there's a TV in here is a Marilyn Monroe poster and a the Marilyn wall. Monroe poster on the wall that this is an, it's not the 1880s or 1890s that we've been transported in the 1960s. And it, it just comes out of nowhere.
3: And is this explained at all through the no. It's just there. It's just there. So why do you think it's there? Why do you think he put that in there?
4: So he he explains why he does it. But like when I was reading through this, I hadn't read the explanation yet, and I was just I was like startled by it. It happens a couple more times throughout, uh, in in ways that are a little bit more explored. Here it comes. It's just two panels, uh, and then the for me the the craziest part is like so the seventh and eighth panel of the page have this character who's like in his bathrobe, looking kind of shocked, and behind him a close up of the TV, and then. It switches, and you see this man looking through the window at William Gull, who's got, like, a startled, ghostly look on his face. Like, yeah. he doesn't know what he's seeing either. And so the moment here is, for me, like, William Gull has been trans- transported into another time frame. The liminality of this is, is being messed with. Mm-hmm. And, like, his actions are so beyond the realm of the norm. So, so like, they're otherworldly. One of the ways in which Alan Moore is trying to explore this is to say like there are these weird moments where like he's transported in time uh, and there's there's no explanation for it other than like it just it it adds to the mystery of the whole thing. Yeah,
3: It almost looks like he's not looking in the window, but that he is the reflection of the person looking out. Right. And he's seeing himself through time.
4: Yeah. And and this happens again uh, later on in Chapter 10 where he's suddenly where he's actually mutilating a body. Um, in someone's home in the 1880s, and then he's transported to a modern day, modern day meaning like 1970s office where you see like computers and well, 80s, I guess, computers and you know, typewriters, and it's like a you know modern looking 1980s sort of office with pe- with people in 80s looking dress, what would be modern day, more at the time. And William Gull is like looking around. And he's like he's sort of surprised by what he's seeing, um, and they're looking at him in his like blood, blood-soaked clothing, but nobody seems all that much uh, bothered by it. And again, it's this—it's this like weird, you know, liminal shift where like the act that he's partaking in somehow is so gruesome that it shifts the time frame that he's in and shifts like the whole time-space continuum.
3: That's so neat. It's pretty compelling. It happens lie.
4: one more time where he winds up outside a big building which would never have existed in the 1880s. And I don't know, that happens a little bit later on. And you see this yeah. building behind him. And of course, the, the the other part of this which is so fascinating is the geography of London, which they did a tremendous amount of research on to to. 'Cause it really plays into this, like where these murders took place mm-hmm. and where William Gull was and what streets he took and where he where he, you know, did his deeds and things like that. And so there's this big building which exists now in London but didn't in the eighteen eighties, which just appears behind him as he's like tearing through the innards of this woman.
3: That's a fascinating way to kind of put across that like the sheer horror of what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. it's, it's compelling. It makes me wanna to... Finally, dive back into it. You, you should this. read it. I,
4: I I thought too it was going to be a slog, and it was for the first bit. But then I was like hooked.
3: Yeah, it's a classic comic piece. It's a classic piece of comic art and and work that I feel sort of um, ashamed that I haven't read yet. You should be ashamed. I'm ashamed of myself. You should be
4: ashamed. And this is us now. The entire <laughs> Strange Familiars universe shaming you into reading From Hell. All right, I'm gonna get on it going get on it. So I'm just going to read this because it's it's directly related to what we were talking about before. It's one of the notes in the back on uh, that scene where he pulls back the cur- with well, the pulls back the curtain and there's a TV and electric lights. Um, the scene is based upon an interpretation of a ghost story recounted in Jack the Ripper: One Hundred Years of Mystery by Peter Underwood, Underwood, which was published by Blandford Press in 1987, uh, amongst other places. The story, as related by Mr. Chapman, is that. On at least four separate occasions, spread over a number of years, he pulled back his curtain to witness a man and a woman disappearing along the passageway of uh, number 29 Hanbury Street. According to Mr. Chapman, it was always the same pair performing exactly the same actions, and the woman looking rather old and bent as the man, dressed in heavy topcoat and tall hat, like William Gull, helped her along the passageway toward the backyard. These apparitions would, it seems, usually occur in the very early mornings of, very, very early hours of morning, during the autumn months. In the interpretations of the event, I have chosen to have Gull's aura phrase hallucinations show him in a vision of Mr. Chapman looking back at him from the future, thus suggesting possibilities beyond those of the conventional ghost story and more in keeping with the themes of From Hell." And so I'd like to ask you, this actually helps me get to my question, which was, we've talked about uh, three different books now. Uh Uh-huh. What is, would you say, the common theme running through all of them? What would be the theme of this episode of Strange Familiars?
3: I mean, in some ways, the common theme is, what is the nature of reality? How do our actions on Earth impact the beyond and vice versa?
4: So what's beyond? We don't know. What do you think's beyond? What have you seen in your life uh, which gives you a clue?
3: I don't think anyone knows, and I don't think we know. And my personal feelings on the matter are that physical reality, as we know, it is one aspect of the whole. I don't think we know what is beyond, but I do think that there's a lot more than we know. And everything I've learned about ecology through my work and, and the things that I teach and what I've experienced tell me that we've only got a tiny part of the picture. One aspect of design that I do with um, ecological design when I'm designing landscapes, when I'm designing other systems is all about design by exclusion. So when we look at limitations, we can actually cross things off the list and we, we finally get ourselves down to like, what is an actual design that works? And so I think that we almost understand reality based on exclusion. So everything that we know points to things that we can identify and explain and understand, but it also creates this like edge of what's beyond that, that we just don't know yet. And as we go through time, sometimes that edge expands a little bit. You know, a lot of, a lot of the talk on this podcast revolves around things, uh, various cryptids and are they, are they physical flesh or are they of the spirit or are they other things? And so it's impossible for everything to be explained through our understandings of science and ecology. And that there are things that we know based on history that people experience and we don't we can't explain it. We just don't know. And that's part of the the beauty in it, I think.
4: Do you think like do you think it's something that you will come to understand when you die? Is that when the truth is revealed or Well, as a living being creature in front of you, I
3: clearly have no frame of reference to answer that question. I don't know. I, I would love it if that were the case, but... You would
4: love it if that were the case.
3: I would love to... Yeah, I would love to die, and all of a sudden, it's like the Curtain of Oz is being pulled, pulled aside, and all of a sudden, I'm exposed to much more. Um.
4: I think a lot of people believe in various different shades of it that that's what happens. I mean, there's certainly a huge component of religious belief, doesn't matter what it is, Abrahamic or otherwise, that is to say, Jew- Jewish, Christian, Muslim, or otherwise that has that expectation that there's this great um apocalypse, which literally means, you know, reveal sure. of the truth at some point, whether it mean whether it's the end of the world or the end of your life, that the as you said, the curtain will be pulled back and like all those mysteries, like who shot JFK, for example, um will be revealed.
3: Yeah, well I hope that's the case and I hope I find out and I hope it doesn't happen for a very long time. <laughs>
4: You had questions for me?
3: Yeah, what is your, um, you know, I've been on this podcast before and I've, you know, I've read a lot of these books and I've gone out on Bigfoot hunts and these things and it's something I take a lot of joy in, but um, what would you say your relationship to the supernatural is?
4: Uh, Not as intimate in that I haven't had the same kinds of experiences that you have, although I've heard you talk about them and they feel very real and compelling. Uh, and what's weird about this is that when you we talked about doing this episode, I thought, you know, I know that I've had personal experiences with the quote unquote supernatural, but I can't remember them. And at the time, I remember thinking to myself, I, what I do remember is having the experience of saying, like, this was monumental, this was life changing, or this was really compelling. And some for some, you know, for whatever reason, I need to remember this. And then it just fades. And I mean. It, what's there is ghostly and I mean that in two ways one in that it's like hard to, it's 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 intangible and it's hard to, to grasp but it's also to do with ghosts like I feel like I've had experiences with non-corporeal beings in various settings where I just felt a presence or experienced an activity that could not have happened otherwise and do you feel like
3: these were in your youth or later in the no, life
4: no they've happened throughout my entire life hmm uh but the the phenomenon is and you actually said that that's sort of common that um that the, a thing would happen and you would like sort of deli- it w- it would be forgotten like it fades
3: yeah i think and i think that's happened with me too i do feel like i've heard stories of people who have these uh, amazing experiences and they act very nonchalant toward them as if nothing's happening or in the aftermath they do sort of fade Things feel very intense in the moment and then afterwards, almost like your cultural training kicks in and you try to explain it away as other things. But
4: Yeah, it reminds me of like the end of It, um, Stephen King's It. We're going to spoil this one. So if you haven't read that book, oh, where have you been for the last 40 years? But um, at the end of the book, the main characters who experience this incredibly traumatic, uh, very volatile, crazy, wild adventure all forget that it happened. And so, like, by the end, they're just kind of, like, whispers of events that they're sharing with each other. And they're like, do you remember? And they don't even really understand their own connection to each other. And then they lose connection to one another. Yeah. Uh, they come back at the end as adults because it happened when they were children. But then they begin to forget again. And, like, I, I feel like that he's, like, like Stephen King often does, is that he's pulling on, on threads of something that's um that's really universal. That there's this this phenomenon that like a thing like that happens and then it's just the natural order of things is that it fades
3: well that seems like a good uh, segue for us to fade out of this podcast
4: I was wondering how you're going to do that so where can you find us uh, hopefully we'll be
3: back again and uh, but all of the books that we mentioned tonight we do have uh, in stock on our website riverbendcomics.com you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and uh we do. Um, we have these in stock, and if if you know they get pinched up, and by the time you get there, they're gone. Uh, shoot us a message. We can always do special orders. Uh, we also um, can be found on eBay in our eBay store, Riverbend Comics. And uh, hopefully, there's some crossover between the Strange Familiars crew and the comic book world. Um, I definitely live in that crossover. Thanks for listening. Any. Uh Closing thoughts there, Sam?
4: I would like to thank Tim Renner for giving us th- this opportunity to share some of our, um, uh, you know, our obsessions with comic books. It's uh, one that you've been um, trafficking for most of your life. I'm relatively new to it. So all of these discoveries are very much that for me. They're like discoveries. Um, you know, like From Hell has existed for a long time. It's been out there for, you know, 25 years. Um, but uh, I, didn't, I didn't know about it until I started to... Become a comic book person and it's really changed my whole perspective on um, on reading and experiencing art.
3: Yeah it's uh, it's been a lifelong love for me and um, I'm still enjoying finding new things and revisiting old ones so cool well we both wish Tim a super fast recovery and uh, it's been nice to see him um, improving.
4: Uh, thank you strange familiars crew for allowing us to um, get in your ear for a little while. Uh, talk about comic books, which is what we know about. Did we do some ad or something now? An ad? Yeah. For? Uh, hot Sauce? Or Tires? <laughs> or RiverbendComics.com? Oh, we did that already. Oh, we did that already. We you can find us about. on Instagram and Facebook so, and all said that. that. Said that? I said oh, that. Okay. I, I guess we should stop talking. Testing, testing. You're a nice guy, and I like you, and you're wearing a Mets hat.
3: Thank you. My name is Mookie Blaylock, and I am here to... Do you know who Mookie Blaylock was? He did the... not play for the Mets. No, he was a basketball player.
4: The Oklahoma Sooners.
3: Yeah, he, wasn't he number 10? He might have been. And then that's why Pearl Jam named their album 10, because Eddie Vedder was a huge Mookie Blaylock fan. <laughs> Are you serious? I'm 100% serious about that.
4: <laughs> I no
3: idea. Fact check it, but I'm not making
4: that up. I think you played in the NBA for the Atlanta Hawks, but I'm not really sure. I've
3: never heard of the Hawks, but that seems logical. You've never heard of the Hawks. I don't know my basketball teams. I've heard of the Bulls. And the, well, the Bears the aren't Bull? basketball. I've heard of the Bulls, and I've heard of the uh, Sixers.
4: Mm-hmm. And where are the Bulls from? Chicago. And the Sixers? I think from Philly. Right. And do you know the whole name of the Sixers? The Philadelphia 76ers. Okay. And why are they called the 76ers? Because of
3: the uh, 1776... Uh, it took place in Philadelphia with the Liberty Bell, and Ben Franklin was there, and they had a party, and they said, Let's make this country independent.
2: I want to thank John and Sam for doing that. That gives me a break, and hopefully, we'll get some other guest hosts. Maybe not every week, we'll try to do every other week until. I get back on my feet a little bit more. I am on my feet. But. <laughs> we have some other thank yous here. These are people who made donations. Michael M. from Germany. The New Beatmaker from the United Kingdom. Jacob T. from New York. Eric C. again. He's a continual donator. He was on the thank you list last time and this time. So thank you so much, Eric. April C. from Colorado. Thank you so much, April. She sent a wonderful book. Amy K. from Minnesota. Thank you so much, Amy. Becky H. and family from the United Kingdom. Thank you, Becky. They sent some coffee and some candy. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. There was an anonymous Where Did the Road Go listener who sent cash and a silver coin and a wonderful note.
5: But but didn't sign it. (laughs) Didn't sign it and no
2: return address. I don't know whether this person wanted to remain anonymous or if they just forgot to sign their name. Thank you, whoever you are. Thank you so much. That was wonderful to receive that. And Steve K. from Florida. So thank you all so much for your support. And also I want to thank our patrons. Thank you so much, patrons. Without you guys, we couldn't do Strange Familiars. If you want to help us make Strange Familiars and get extra content besides, you can become a patron. Go to Patreon. Patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. There's all different tiers of support there. You can get extra content, or you can get things like t-shirts, stickers, pins, and more. Go ahead and check it out. Patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. Speaking of Patreon, there will be an April patron episode. We were wondering if we could get one done.
5: Basically, because of the help from John, you were able to very slowly over the course of the past two weeks.
2: Yeah, if John and Sam hadn't stepped in, I wouldn't have been able to get that done for April. It's a two-part episode, so it's going to be April's patron show and May's patron show. Starts in April, at the end of April, and continues in early May. So I was glad to be able to get that done, like I said, this month, more than any other, after the support that our patrons and everyone else showed us. There's
5: also still more people that I need to compile into a list of thank yous. And uh, so what we've said so far is not exhaustive.
2: Oh, not at all. Not at all. There will be more.
5: And I'm sure there's someone really important to us that we've totally forgotten.
2: (laughs) And my bed drawings, I'm going to stop at, I think, 20 or so. And uh, we will publish a little uh, digest size publication so people can buy those. And uh, I'm going to auction off the originals. We'll figure out how to do that. We might do a live auction if I can figure out how to do it. Kind of a strange familiars live event, we'll auction the artwork, and uh, maybe have a group chat if people want to ask us questions. Or would this be else.
5: like an appearing, like on camera thing? <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it without you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this only works because I don't actually believe anyone's out there. <laughs>
2: so the patron show for april and may is based off a stereo view lo and behold the photo of the week this week is a stereo view not the same one no but it is a stereo view writing spider and web
5: i love the early like scientific photography you know this isn't super super early but certainly turn of the century and the clarity and the um the way that the subject the spider is positioned in the photo i think is just amazing it, it really is just the simplicity of black and white with a spider is
2: yeah it's, it's a beautiful orb and this uh, nice spider in the center of it. it has a whole description on the back writing spider and web mrs spider is waiting for her dinner a fat fly may get caught in her web a hard shake or jar tells her that her dinner has come when an insect gets caught the spider rushes to it she wraps the insect in a band of silk She does this by turning the insect over and over while she spins. Then she takes her catch to the center of the web. She sucks the insect's blood and throws away the hard parts of its body. If an insect breaks her web, Mrs. Spider spins a new one. Under her body at the tip are three pairs of little knobs. They are called spinnerets. Some of the spinnerets make a thread covered with glue. Can you see the tiny glue drops? Mrs. Spider can also make thread without glue. The threads that go out from the center have no glue in them. The threads that go around and round have glue in them. The spider knows just which threads to walk on. She will not get her feet caught. The spider lays about 500 eggs. She puts them safely in a little silken egg sack. In spring, only a few young spiders come out. What do you think these spiders have done? They have eaten all their brothers and sisters. A little nature lesson on the back <laughs> of the stereo view. So if you go to the show notes under this episode... You will see an image of this stereo view. If you click on that, it'll take you to our Etsy shop where you can buy this or other photos of the week. There's still some other photos of the week left in there. While you're on Etsy, you can check out our other stuff. Should get restocks of all of my books, I think, this week. I know there's a few people who are still waiting on book orders on Etsy. All books should be in stock this week. The manufacturer shipping them to us is like, they'll ship us three books in one box and then... Seven books in another. It's just bizarre. It's been really, really messed up ever since COVID, but we should have them all in stock this week. If you've been waiting for your Etsy orders, we'll get them out this week. I think only three people are waiting for books at this point. If you go to our Etsy shop, you can see all kinds of stuff. We just added some new wooden magnets with some phrases from Strange Familiars. You're the Wizard, do the chant, woo, and live, laugh, whoop. I don't even remember which episodes I said those phrases in, but I remember they were sort of catchphrases that listeners seem to like and found kind of funny. And we will be adding some Bigfoot thank you cards as well. So check out all the stuff we have on Etsy. We'll be restocking t-shirts sometime soon. I have the order in. All kinds of stuff in our Etsy shop. And of course, that's big help for us as well when you buy stuff from Etsy. While you're on Etsy, make sure to check out our friends at Karmic Garden. They have the Strange Familiar scent. They have a Flannel Man scent. They have all kinds of other wonderful soaps and scented sanitizers, natural cleaners, candles, beard balm, and more. That's Karmic Garden. One word, I believe, on Etsy. But if you type in strange familiars, I think their stuff comes up as well as our stuff because they have that strange familiar scent. Also on Etsy, Chad has his Ruck Rabbit Outdoors shop. Check that out as well. Their stock changes pretty frequently. I think they have wool clothes and uh, ferro rods and knives and so forth. So go ahead and check that out. Ruck Rabbit Outdoors. Make sure to check out Riverbend Comics, riverbendcomics.com. Thanks again to John and Sam for stepping in and hosting tonight. Patrons, you will get a show very soon for April. Everyone else, we will be back next week with another episode of Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. If you'd like the intro and background music we use, that is by Stonebreath. To hear more or to purchase music by Stonebreath, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. Strange Familiars is on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars gathering group. We're on Instagram, at strangefamiliars, and of course, you can always find us at strangefamiliars.com.